Blog Talk Radio. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Howard Waldman. Howard is the author of Good Americans Go to Paris When They Die, a novel described as a masterfully woven novel of profound humanity and lethally honed humor where heaven and an Orwellian hell share a fragile frontier. Good Americans is Howard's fourth novel. Welcome, Howard. Uh... Hello, Maggie. Very glad to be here. Look, I'd love to start this interview, as I often, almost always do, with you reading us a little bit from the book, just to give listeners a flavor, and then we'll have a chat. Uh, be glad to. Uh, first of all, let me sketch the background to the passage. Uh, three men and two women, once dead, materialize stark naked and marvelously young again in a dilapidated bureaucratic room overlooking the Seine. Good Americans Go to Paris When They Die is uh, more than a humorous adage, for they've resurrected in the processing department of the prefecture, the other world prefecture, where deserving Americans are recycled into Paris. But apparently an administrative blunder has been committed because they don't meet all the conditions for transfer. They've died all right and are Americans, but have they been good? While waiting for an administrative review board to convene and rule on their fate, that is, transfer, transfer to Paris or return to void, they're placed in administrative suspension. They wait for years, for decades, for that decision to materialize. Finally, a trial transfer is run on the Americans to test if they're compatible with the real world. The Americans are supposed to be transferred to their respective sojourn dates in Paris for 24 hours. The major character, Seymour Stein, normally should be sent back to the year 1951, but the drunken transfer technicians make a bad, bad mistake. The door of the transfer cubicle buzzes open. Seymour Stein steps out into swirling mist that hides everything except the grass he's standing in, close trees looming spectrally, and the low sun reduced to a faint red disk. He thinks he's in one of the two big public parks of Paris at dawn, the Bois de Vincennes or the Bois de Boulogne. The sun asserts power. The mist thins and now rises like a tattered curtain, revealing things incompatible with civilized public parks. From his sloping meadow, he can see green forests to the horizon, a stone's throw away, a slow, broad, muddy river pushes past him. Just opposite is a long island, covered to the shores with tremendous trees, except for a clearing with a miserable huddle of skin and branch huts. A crude raft lies pulled halfway up the muddy beach. Wooden stakes impale two shattered skulls. Seymour lets himself down in the grass. He stares at the bugs and the flowers, thankful that at least the grass and the bugs and the flowers are the same. He waits patiently for the voice in the sky to do something about the things that aren't the same. He knows exactly where he is. He knows the name, the later name, of that island. How does he know it? How can he be sure? He knows. He's sure. Sure it's the Ile de la Cité, the historical heart of Paris, and the river, the river Seine, of course. 
But even the names, like himself here in his 1950 turtleneck sweater and corduroy pants, are anachronisms because the French language is unborn. By what guttural phonemes do the hut dwellers name the island and the river? What he sees is clearly prior to the lithographed illustrations he recalls from the 1950 edition of the Michelin Guide to Paris, the stone walls, baths, and forum of the Romans, prior to the palisades of the Celtic tribe of the Parises in the 3rd century B.C., to say nothing of the later things he visited there so often with Marie-Claude and so didn't need a guidebook for, Notre-Dame, the flower in the bird markets, the conciergerie, those future things, and that future beloved girl, maybe only a few hundred yards from where he sits, now weeping, separated from her by thousands of years and death. He goes on waiting for the voice in the sky to pull him out of this useless time. From the sky comes no voice, but tragic hoarse cries and the ghostly sound of wings working the air. Above, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of long-necked cranes, or stalks, or geese, in V-formations, flap by. They have a place to go, somewhere in the direction of the sun. They keep coming, arising like smoke from the green horizon behind him, hunking overhead, disappearing beyond the green horizon before him. Seymour stretches out on his back and stares up at their endless passage, which darkens the sky. When he awakens, the sun is higher. Stragglers are flapping by overhead. In the island clearing in front of the miserable huts, dirty, wild-haired proto-Parisians in tattered skins are gathered about a fire. They have fire, at least. It's more than he has. How will he ever survive here without fire? For he realizes now that he's stranded for good in this time by the fault of those sozzled transfer technicians or by dead sober malevolence on a much higher level. There'll be no voice in the sky to summon him back. He's like a relay satellite intended for Earth orbit but launched with exaggerated thrust and now beyond, beyond recall captured by a distant icy planet stranded for life here, a life bound to be nasty, brutish, and very short, unless the tribe takes him in. Would they? If so, take him in how? The two staked skulls stare back at him. He tries to make out what the proto-Parisians are devouring. What marvels does he possess to impress them into better-than-digestive welcome? Passive heir to the technology of the 20th century, he's stripped of the inheritance here. At the prefecture, they hadn't even included a penknife in his 24-hour survival kit. So how can he stagger these Stone Age savages with a sharp miracle of steel? No cigarette lighter either to wow them with flame at the twitch of a thumb. He does have banknotes. Those, token, those tokens of an advanced economy would be no more than exotic toilet paper for them. Seymour doesn't even have comic book knowledge of an imminent eclipse to extinguish the sun with phony incantations and make them kneel to him by commanding it back. A solitary goose or crane or stork labors across the sky, miles and miles from the nearest 
yearned for communal V. It hunks with a profound melancholy that echoes in Seymour's heart. He badly misses the others, even dumb Max, maybe 20,000 years distant. Wait, hadn't the same drunken time blunder been committed on them too? Helen shares his 1951 time, so maybe, probably, certainly she shares this prehistoric time too. She's not 20,000 years away, but here, maybe just a 100 yards away in the forest, probably, certainly, searching for him. Stupidly, Seymour shouts her name. The proto-Parisians, squatting about their fire, leap up, point at him, grab fire-hardened spears and Neolithic axes. They run to the raft, drag it into the river, and four of them scramble aboard. A snarling, broken-toothed, hungry-looking savage pulls it toward the shore. Seymour Stein stumbles toward the trees, yelling, Helen! Helen! That's it. Oh, that's that's um, a, a really fun passage in many ways uh, to take Seymour back to a sort of proto-man. And it's not the only time that you play around with time. Time is a, it's a really shifting thing in the book. How did you cope as a writer with the fact that you know, there were so many different times making up the present, and yet there was no time in the present? It was you know, quite a tricky juggle for you. Talk to me about that a little bit. Uh, you mean the times that the uh, main characters had spent in Paris when they were young? Well, there's that, and there's the present tense, and then there's this era where Seymour gets sent back to you know, an earlier time. Time is continually shifting in this book in, in many ways, internally and externally. Yes, absolutely. Well, these uh, five Americans have been uh, resurrected probably around the year 2000, I would say. And one of them is a, an ex-Marine who had been in Paris in the year 1900. Now, in order to make the uh, sequences in 1900 believable, I spent a lot of time uh, on uh, uh, research, iconic uh, pictures, and so forth and so on, in order to make it sound uh, plausible. I had, um, and the same thing is true for 1937, which is the sojourn date of uh, another of the characters. I had absolutely no trouble with 1951. That's a long time ago, isn't it? But I was there as a young student, and uh, that came very, very naturally. Um, as for this passage here, um, well, I don't, I don't know. I was, I was inventing. It's, it's certain that Paris was inhabited long before the uh, the Celtic tribes. You know, as for the present tense, which I use, uh, it's a funny thing there. Uh, the novel begins with the materialization of one of these uh, characters, uh, Naughty Maggie. That's another Maggie. Uh, and uh, it, it had to be in the present tense. Uh, uh, suddenly, uh, Maggie Thompson is. And, and the chapter itself, very short chapter, is entitled Is. And, and once I started with the present tense, I couldn't shift. 
And so I went on with the present tense. I mean, I, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Mm. It gave you the thread, I guess, to, to work through the book. Excuse me? It gave you the thread to work through the book. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the other times veered off from that thread. Yeah, that's it. So, so tell me about um, you know, how you began the story. The, the quote, most people know. Um, did you begin with the quote, or um, did you have the idea for the story first and, and marry the quote to the story? Well, uh, okay, suddenly that saying popped into my mind, and I thought I was qualified for handling the subject. Uh, I, it's true we, I we wasn't dead. We know where you were going to go when you die. <laughs> I hadn't died yet, but I was an American, and, and, and I knew Paris very, very well. Also, right from the start, I, I conceived of the prefecture as a... It's a gigantic, blundering bureaucracy. And, and again, I felt I was qualified to handle that theme. Uh, I had taught for decades in the French educational system, the Éducation Nationale, and so I knew all about gigantic, blundering bureaucracies. But uh, I think the most important of all the factors that explain why I wrote this novel is that, in a way, it's a sequel to an earlier novel of mine called Back There, which could have been entitled Back Then. Uh, I imagine that one of the five resurrected Americans was, had been, the main character in that earlier novel, a young American who goes to mid-century Paris and falls in love with a French girl and botches everything, ruins that love of his life. And I, I found the theme very touching, an attempt to overcome the the barriers of time and death to to return to an earlier life and salvage a uh, uh, spoiled love. I think those are the main reasons. Mm. And and those are clearly key themes through the book. Um, but there's some other key things too, um, themes running through the book. Things like bureaucracy in a broader sense and how you know we almost bow down to this bureaucracy. It's like our god. Yeah, well, the poor five Americans uh, have no choice in the matter. Uh, they try to escape. That's true. After a while, they try to escape this uh, a bureaucracy, which is uh, less a meddling bureaucracy than a perfectly indifferent uh, bureaucracy. Uh, months go by, even years, without their ever seeing anybody uh, except the poor cleaning girl. Uh, I, I didn't really uh, uh, write the novel with uh, issues in mind, if you see what I mean. That is, I, I didn't say uh, I want to write something about uh, bureaucracy. It's true there was, uh, because I'm, I'm instinctive as a writer, I'm not really uh, intellectual as a writer, uh, I did have one issue that right from the start I wanted to deal with, and this is a, perhaps a touchy subject. It was religion. Uh, two, two of the, after all, they, they've been resurrected, which assumes a, a great a, a supreme power. Um, and an afterlife, two, of course. Excuse me? And an afterlife, of course. And an afterlife, and uh, they, um, uh, God is one of the main characters in the novel. 
But as I say, this is perhaps a touchy subject. Huh? Yes. The, and have you experienced some fallout from that? From that particular point of view? I, I, I mean, that particular that, uh, dealing with that subject? No, not even so much the fact that it deals with that subject, but your your God's not attractive. <laughs> uh, I feel like I feel tempted here to say, is he ever? No, no, I, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm a joker, you know. Uh, no, he's not attractive. No, his problem, because uh, even God can have problems, you know, we mustn't be selfish and think that we have a monopoly on the state. Um, he's a very old gentleman now, like myself, and he uh, has lost a great deal of his former powers. Uh, he's, he's nostalgic for that time when he created stars in the ocean and parted the Red Sea and, and things like that, and he's pulled in his stakes. And he, he lives and mainly sleeps in uh, the great good place, uh, that is, Paris, uh, no, he's not. I suppose he's not attractive. He's a bit testy, I think. He's a testy old man. And quite inept. And quite a, excuse me? Inept. Uh, he's, he's bumbling. inept, but I mean, that's, that's, that's because of his age. One does become inept at, at that age. Of course, he's, he's 10 billion years old. I mean, it's... You know. Yes, I suppose a little Alzheimer's is, is uh, not unthinkable. <laughs> and I agree yeah. with you about, yeah. is he ever. Um, talk to me a little bit about being an expat, because it informs most of your writing. Yes. Um, well, that's a question I've had to field for a long time. Uh, what caused you to spend most of your life in France? And um, every, every few years I'd come up with a new explanation None of them were completely satisfying, and some were downright silly. For example, when uh, a super patriotic American would come and ask me uh, a trifle aggressively uh, what the hell I was doing in Paris, in, in Europe. In France of all places. In France of all places, exactly. <laughs> uh, after all, um, tens of millions of Europeans had... Uh, pulled up their stakes and gone and settled permanently in the United States. Uh, it was unthinkable that one solitary American should pull the same operation but in the opposite direction. In any case, uh, to these people, I would come up with some downright silly explanations. For example, uh, the relatively cool summers of Paris compared to the blast furnace heat of New York summers. You know all about that and the superiority of French food. Well, I mean, it's true, I hate heat and I do love good food, but that's not a convincing motive for, for permanent residence in, in France. Anyhow, soon after I left, I think they uh, came up with cheap air conditioning units, and pretty soon the quality of French cuisine, affordable French cuisine, slumped badly, what with frozen food and, and fast food joints, springing up like poisonous uh, toadstools all over the place. Uh, then, when I would be talking to fellow French teachers, they tended to be uh, a, a, a leftist uh, group, 
they tended in that direction. And then I came up with uh, uh, another explanation uh, that was so absurdly pretentious that I didn't dare express it directly. I just hinted at it. It went like this. I had been an inner exile, capital I, capital E, in New York in the time of uh, McCarthy hysteria. This is going back some. And uh, so-called, I, I couldn't stomach militant conformism, mass culture, anti-intellectualism, what else, uh, flag-waving. Uh, and so finally I became an outer exile, capital O, capital E, an expatriate, where? France, of course. Uh, we're, we're really swimming in, in, in cliches here. A country tolerant of non-believers and intellectuals, where, uh, this was a little true, where the word professeur was pronounced with respect, unlike the states where professor was more likely to be a, a jeer. Oh, these cliches, these cliches. They may contain a tiny grain of truth. I mean, it's a fact that in the States, I stood out in no good way. Uh, they looked upon me as something of an alien. Okay, in Paris, too, I stood out, but favorably. I, I was clearly an alien, but uh, a good alien. I shared, for example, the prestige of the American troops who, uh, without my assistance, had liberated France a few years before, and I was a compatriot of Jerry Lewis, the French had baffling admiration for Jerry Lewis. <laughs> well, that's look at the the real reason. But it's but you not, hang on to your American um, yes, yes, self, yes, yes. don't you? You use it oh. in your work. Oh you, yeah. You haven't, oh. Um, you, you oh know, absolutely. Your, I mean, the you're first, a formal expat. <laughs> that, that's it. You know, I mean, the first twenty years, uh, psychiatrists tell us it's the first six months are the formative uh, years, the formative period of your life. And that, those were 20 years in, in, in my life. Uh, so I, I am American, but uh, the problem is the only America that can appear in my writing is the long-lost America of the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, which must seem extremely exotic to any eventual American um, uh, readers. Uh, no, so it's a nostalgic no, I, I, America. Excuse me? It's a nostalgic America. Oh, it's a, yeah. Well, nostalgia is the big uh, theme, I think, uh, in, my, in my work. Uh, I didn't realize this until somebody uh, pointed out to me. Uh, uh, do you want me to talk about that? Uh, I, <laughs> if it's you'd actually, like. Excuse me? If you'd like. Well, it's stronger than nostalgia. I can't find a word for it. it it's uh, pathological nostalgia. Uh, at best, it's obsessively focused on the past. But sometimes, and this is even more alarming, it's accompanied by an attempt to modify that past. In, in, in my novel back there, which I've mentioned already, recounting the love between an American and a French girl in mid-century France, uh, the reader becomes aware that back there is actually a novel. Seymour Stein is in the process of writing uh, long after the events he describes, and that the reunion of the estranged lovers is, is a happy ending that never occurred in reality. And then in my first novel, Time Travail, that's a, an eloquent title, I think, 
It's a play on time travel uh, that takes place in your mind, and it's usually painful, so it's time travail. Uh, anyhow, the pr protagonist tinkers together a primitive time machine that allows him to summon up images, imperfect images of his long-dead sweetheart, and he'll try to join her. And in Good Americans, of course, this yearning for the past is universal. It's not, I mean, it's not just the five Americans who long to be reunited with their sweethearts, but also the functionaries in the prefecture who have also died and possess only, uh, how shall I say, fragmented memories of their past. And as I pointed out, even God, now a doddering old gentleman, is nostalgic for his uh, omnipotent past. Well, you know, if, if this theme of nostalgia uh, figures so prominently in my books, it has to do with the fact that I started writing novels only after I, I retired. And the territory behind me, alas, was much vaster than the territory before me, so my gaze was largely backward. But do you think that, um, you know, the, the human mind in general tends to return continually to the scene of our mistakes? Well, my mind, my mind does, God knows, particularly at 4 o'clock in the morning when I wake up, you know, battling insomnia. And, uh, oh, yes, yes, absolutely. And so that that's a universal longing that you tap in your work. Yes, yes, I would say so. Mm. Now, um, I know you're a little burnt out, <laughs> but um, tell me what, what's coming up for you. What would you like to do? I mean, is there some kind of writing that, um, you know, that you're feeling drawn to at the moment? Well, a few short stories, a few flash fictions, because I haven't got the stamina anymore uh, to do novels. Uh, all of my novels took me, on average, uh, three years to write, doing nothing else thinking of it uh, uh, permanently. How did my, my poor wife get through the, uh, this period? Uh, God alone knows. Uh, I think that if you are an artist, in the broader sense of the word, and you want to be creative to the end, uh, you ought to paint or compose and not write. Uh, I think late period creation is, is awfully rare with writers. Uh, I can think offhand of Sophocles, who wrote one of his best plays, supposedly when he was 89. And when it comes to musicians and painters, it's amazing, particularly painters. Titian, Tintoretto, uh, I don't know, Matisse, Picasso, Monet, were still going strong in their 80s. Uh, and then in music, Haydn, the great Haydn, was pushing 70 when he composed his finest string quartets or, or uh, uh, Verdi and Monteverdi composed their best operas at 80. Uh, you can't see me, but I'm, I am blushing violently, associating my, my minuscule self with such giants. Yes, I think that's, um, that may be true. I'll have to look into it, although I did interview somebody recently who had written his first novel at the age of 80. No kidding. Oh, there's no. hope. There's hope for me. <laughs> there's hope, there's on plenty on. of time. Um, yeah. but, but I understand. And, you know, look, novel writing is, is exhausting. Um, interestingly, though, even though you've mentioned it takes three to four years, you've had a novel out every year um, for the past three or four years. Uh, not really. Not really. Uh, my first novel 
uh, was written. Is it the publication the, date only? Huh? It was written about ten years ago and, and mm. was published by uh, Jacobite Press, an Australian outfit, which was later uh, taken over by my present uh, uh, publishers. You see, and the 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 date of publication doesn't correspond uh, necessarily with the date of uh, of composition. Uh, I understand that. All right, well, I'm afraid we have um, only a few minutes left, Howard, but, um, so we'll have to end it there. Yes. But it's been wonderful talking to you, and uh, you might just talking. want to quickly tell readers where they can get your book. Yes, well, they can get the book at uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, they can get the book at any uh, of the big uh, British bookstores. And... Uh, well, that's it. They they can get the book from uh, Be Right Books, uh, my publisher, and there we are. That, that's wonderful. Thank you, Howard. And I want to thank you. Our next author is Wendy James, who we'll be talking to next week about her novel, The Steel Diaries. And um, that is a novel about the Australian art scene in uh, Sydney in the, in the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s. So um, it will be an interesting artistic-related discussion. Uh, we'll see you then. Thank you, Howard. Thank you.